Welcome to ActonLine, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. In this episode, Acton Institute president and co-founder, Reverend Robert Sirico, joins John Mackey, CEO of Whole Foods, to discuss Mackey's new book, Conscious Leadership. Mackey, also the author of Conscious Capitalism, explains the benefits provided to society by entrepreneurs and the free market, while also discussing engaging topics like the effects of raising the federal minimum wage, Amazon's purchase of Whole Foods, and more. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Act in Line on our website at actin.org slash actinline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It's a delight to welcome John Mackey to Business Matters. You may know Mr. Mackey as the uh, founder, uh, CEO of Whole Foods Markets, uh, or the author of Conscious Capitalism, but now you'll know him as the author of Conscious Leadership, and that's what we want to talk about today. John, it's, I'm delighted to be with you again, uh, especially in light of the possibility of our opening a place here in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Thanks for having me on, Father Robert. What does conscious leadership mean? You, you, this is more than just one of these typical business books. It's chock full of uh, economic and uh, philosophical insight. So tell us what conscious leadership is. or wh- What is a conscious leader? Well, of course, there's a 250-page book that explains in detail what a conscious leader is. And um, each chapter... There are nine chapters, and each chapter represents a different aspect of conscious leadership, from putting purpose first, to leading with love, to always acting with integrity, to finding win-win solutions, etc. But if I was to give you the simplest version of it, it's, it's just like it sounds. It's leadership done with more awareness, leadership done more consciously. Most of the time, uh, particularly in business, uh, business people tend to be doers, people of action. They have to get a lot done, and uh, they have to-do lists and checklists, and they every day they go in and they check them off, and they have a lot of meeting and appointments. As a result, frequently leaders are so busy they don't do any, they don't have that much self-awareness. And when Socrates said, know thyself, uh, many, many leaders uh, don't know themselves very well. They don't know what their purpose is. Mm-hmm. They don't understand their emotions. They don't understand what's motivating them. They are acting in a non-conscious way. So a conscious leader is one who's become more conscious of their purpose, more conscious of their emotions, more conscious of what motivates them and drives them forward. Well, what you're arguing here is that, they're, that you're offering a rejection of the split between purpose and profit. Is there a necessary uh, contradiction between purpose and profit, or do you think that they, they are mutually reinforcing? Mutually reinforcing. It's been the enemies of business 
that have criticized business as being only about money, only about profit. And it's, it's very odd because if you were to, if you were at a party and you ask people, um, what's the purpose of business? Most people would look at you quizzically and say, what do you mean, what's the purpose of business? Everybody knows the purpose of business. The purpose of business is to make money. Right. That's a, that's a very odd answer. Because if you ask what the purpose of a doctor is, doctors make a lot of money. But their purpose isn't to make money, at least for most doctors. It's to heal people. Teachers educate. Architects design buildings. Engineers construct things. Priests, they help the spiritual uh, needs of their, of their uh, people in their church. And each one of these professions refers back to some type of value creation that they're doing for other people. Right. Only business is put in this very narrow box that it's just about the money. And it really isn't. Because business people create the most value in the world. Business creates more value than all the governments and all the nonprofits combined, exponentially more value. We create value for our customers, for our employees, for our suppliers, for our investors, for the communities that we're part of. So there is no contradiction between purpose and profit. Um, they belong together. And I'll say one more thing about it. It's like um, uh, my friend Ed Freeman likes to use this in a metaphor, and I think it's a good one. He says, look, my body has to produce red blood cells or it will die. It doesn't therefore logically follow that just because I have to produce red blood cells to survive, that my purpose of my life is to produce red blood cells. Exactly. Similarly, business must make profits or it will die. Right. But it doesn't mean that's why it exists. It needs profits, but that's, it's about the value creation that it's doing for others. That's real, it's really where its purpose lies. And it's also true that if they don't make a profit in business, you're failed at the goal of going into business in the first place. So your planning has been faulty. And you're not creating value for anybody. You're not, you're, 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 right. you've, uh, not that failing in business is any great um, sin, because sometimes mar- ideas don't take with the market exactly. or you don't execute well. Right. But uh, it, in and of itself, business is about creating profits because profits are how they, they get recycled into the economy. And that's really how humans make progress. We make progress through innovation and profits being attracted to innovations. And then those profits get recycled and reinvested and we have an upward spiral of our economy. So profits are essential. They're, they're good. They're just not the purpose. They're signals. They're signals that you're doing what you set out to do. Totally agree. How do you think we ought to view in 2021 uh, the, the relation between capitalism and profits, especially in this, what we hope will be a post-pandemic world? I have to say, if we, if we look at the name capitalism, um, you know, Karl Marx named it capitalism. Right. And it's pejorative. It's a criticism. It, and it, it, it goes back to that thesis that intellectuals have that business is just about the money. And business people are particularly selfish and greedy and exploitative. I like Deidre McCloskey's um, name for it, which is innovationism. Or she says innovism, but I think innovationism catches it a little bit better. And I'll credit her for that. So it's about innovations. And we make progress in, in humanity through innovations that change our lives for the better for the most part. So 
the relation between capitalism and profit, then we can change that to relationship between innovationism and profit. Innovations are how firms take the ideas of science and operationalize them into the real world. And profits will follow from successful innovations that create value for other people. So they're, right. they're one. They're together. Uh, people like us are often accused of defending um, markets and business and capitalism. Uh, and I agree with you, by the way, fully on the, the narrowness of the word capitalism. Um, but what critiques would you offer to a market society? What limitations are there to capitalism? It's an economic system. It's the way to organize society to create prosperity, progress, and growth. But it's not a substitution for having an ethical system. It's not a substitution for having uh, spiritual values. It's not a substitution for government or the nonprofit sector or all the other aspects of humanity. It's, it's important and it's necessary, but it's not the answer to every challenge and problem the world has. Right. And business is wrongly, and innovationism is wrongly condemned for not solving all the problems. It can't solve all the problems. Right. There are other problems that business can't solve. That doesn't mean that what business does isn't good. It is good. It's just not complete all by itself. Yeah, right. Milton Friedman uh, said to me when we were beginning the Acton Institute, he said, capitalism is necessary but not sufficient. And I think that's what you, you're basically saying. That's exactly. Milton was a brilliant man, and he's absolutely right on that. Oh. I totally agree. You talk about purpose in the book and, and uh, that purpose is important not just for businesses but for people within the company. Could you elaborate that a bit? I'll go further than that. Um, I mean, people want their work. They want to make their work. It's more than just earning a living. It's, it's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you're just trying to survive, then just earning a living is good enough. But initially, people get that, and then they want to move up Maslow's hierarchy to higher need levels. And purpose is people want to feel like their work is making a contribution to other people. It's an, work should be an act of service. It produces a living. It produces income. But it's also producing value for other people. And so one way I can put it, let's say people come to work at Whole Foods Market. And what I, I do the orientation. The first thing I say when they come to work is, well, thanks for working for Whole Foods. While you're here, your job is to maximize profits for our shareholders. That is, that is not going to inspire that many people. Right, right. If you come in and you say, thank you for working at Whole Foods. Our higher purpose is to nourish people on the planet. Yes. And then we go into some detail about how we try to do that. Then, then they're rightly going to feel like, well, you know, my working here is actually helping other people. It's a good thing. So... Purpose, I, I believe that if you want people to work for a company for a long time, if, if you're a leader in a business or any organization, actually, this is not just business, this is organizations in general, There's, if you do these two things, you will probably keep people for many, many years, if not for their entire lives. The first one is people want purpose. And if you can give them purpose, then you are fulfilling a deep human need. And secondly, people want love. People want to be cared about. They want, they feel like their life is, that somebody cares about them. And so one, we try to do both those things at Whole Foods. We try to give people a sense of purpose and meaning in their work. And we also want them to know that we care about them 
and that there's a community of people that care about them and that they can care for as well. So those two things together, purpose and love, yeah. that's what humans are looking for. And if we provide it, then people are going to be deeply, much more fulfilled in their work. What's your personal uh, sense of purpose? Uh, is it the same or different from, from that? It's the same. It, th- that's not unusual for the founding entrepreneurs, higher purpose in life to be similar to the higher purpose of the organization they create. Yeah. That is my own higher purpose in life. Whole Foods is the major manifestation of that higher purpose, but there are other things that I'm doing that are outside of Whole Foods that also reflect. What, el- what else brings you fulfillment? Um, Buckminster Fuller once said, I'm paraphrasing this. I, he, he didn't say it quite this simply, but it, it's the essence of what he said. Because uh, he, when he was young, he was very depressed, and he, he almost committed suicide when he was at age 30. And he had sort of a spiritual awakening. And in that awakening, he saw, he asked himself a question. How much good could one human being do in a lifetime? That resonates with me. How much good can I do in a lifetime? And uh, so to nourish people on the planet is a form of creating the good. If you talk about in philosophy terms, the good, the true, and the beautiful, all three are important. I'm about optimizing good to the greatest extent I, I possibly can. And yet your stores are, are beautiful. <laughs> when I go in them, I mean, it's like, go, I, I don't mean to trivialize this, but it's almost like an art gallery. I'm glad you, I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. And one of the things that we hear all the time is, uh, at least pre-COVID and hopefully post-COVID, is I love being in your stores. They just feel good. Yeah. Now, yeah. part of what feel, makes that feel good is the team members have a lot of uh, love that's circulating in the store. But also, the stores are beautiful. And, and beauty is like a vitamin. Just like we need vitamins, we need to get enough zinc and enough B12 and enough iron in our bodies or we'll be deficient. Well, our souls need beauty. Sure. Beauty nourishes our souls, exactly. whether it be beautiful music, beautiful, that's why art is so important. And, then, and beauty is something human beings need. And if we're deprived of it, we're diminished. It's like uh, we're less happy. It, re- it reminds us of our transcendence, that we go beyond just our material world, you know, that beauty isn't just material. Beauty gives us a glimpse of a more transcendent reality. It, it expresses it. When we hear beautiful music... We can feel sometimes our souls being transported to this higher realm of potentiality. That's what beauty does. Yes, exactly, exactly. You you have a phrase in the book that kind of, uh, I hadn't seen it before. I mean, I've seen win-win all over the place. Uh, But you've come up with a a new rendition, the win-win-win. Could you uh, expand on that and and tell us uh, what the difference between that and just the win-win is? Nice. I like the, trit- the Trinitarian metaphor here, though. <laughs> win, win, win means good for me, good for you, and good for the larger community. So, for example, I'll give you an exaggerated uh, analogy to get my point. Uh, let's say that um, you hire a contract killer, $100,000 to kill somebody you don't like. Okay, that might be a win for you, might be a win for the contract killer. It is not a win for the greater society. 
and it's not a, it's, it's certainly not a, a win for the person who just got killed or murdered. Right. So right. win win is good, but not good enough. We need that third win. Win win win. Good for you. Good for me. Good for the larger community. And you know what? I think one of the things I realized as I was writing that chapter um, is that win 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 is actually. I could argue it's almost a complete ethical system. We don't naturally think win-win-win. We, we, are, we are taught to think win-lose. That is the way we grow up. Yeah. We have metaphors of sports. So somebody wins, everybody else loses. Metaphors of Darwinian survival of the fittest. It's kill or be killed. Uh, only the paranoid survive. War metaphors. Um, we don't have win-win-win metaphors. They're, they're extremely rare. But... If you take on, what I've discovered is, if you take on the framework of win-win-win in every interaction that you have, it's a complete ethical system. In every situation, win-win-win is appropriate. If you begin to think that way, so that every circumstance you're in, you start asking, what's the win-win-win here? What's the win-win-win solution? It will completely transform your life. It, it is amazing. I highly, highly recommend practicing that. Yeah, you know, in moral theology, when we deal with the question of social ethics, what, what the goal of it is, is the common good. And it sounds very much like uh, what you're alluding to here. That's the third win. What's the common good? Right. And if it's a win for you and a win for me, but it's a loss for the rest of the larger society, then it's really not a good solution. It's not a good ethical stance. It, it can't be enough just for you and me to gain. It must be for the common good as well. Right. And that's more difficult. Yeah. But think about it. If every situation you're thinking about how can you win, how can I win, and how can the larger society win, how can the common good be enhanced here, a lot of times that will change the way you think about the circumstance and you'll come up with a better solution. Another phrase that's often, or a word that's used pejoratively is competition as though you have the lose-lose, or the win-lose situation. Right. Whereas, um, I mean, I, I see, I'm informed by Hayek in this regard, I see competition as planning over the whole of society rather than just monopolistic or licensing planning. That, that sounds like it, it dovetails with this win-win-win common good. Competition, I mean, there's, you can reframe competition and... Uh, Competition doesn't have to be pejorative or negative. About once every couple of weeks, I have a game night with some friends. And we dearly love each other, but we're competing. And yet, we enjoy the competition because it challenges us to be, to be more than we were, to become a better player. And I think that's the way to think about competition. Your competitors help keep you from being complacent. They help you strive for higher degrees of excellence. Mm -hmm. It's... I, I'll, I'll use an analogy here that I find particularly interesting. Arguably, the three greatest tennis players who've ever lived have played at the same exact time. They are the three all-time winners of majors, and that's Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and uh, Novik Djokovic. Those guys have won more of the Grand Slam championships than anybody else, and they are ex played exactly the same era. They pushed each other to get better and better and better. And so they, even though they're now getting into their late 30s, they keep winning time and time again. They keep winning these Grand Slams. If they hadn't had each other, pushing each other to get to a higher level, right. would, they, would they have been as great? And the answer is almost surely they would not have been. 
<laughs> you know, as you say that, it, it occurs to me that competition is a form of tutoring. Uh, if you're open enough to be tutored by, by the person you're competing against. Com competitors sometimes force us to become good students. Yeah. Because one of the things that can happen in business, and I think maybe in life in general, is success can breed hubris mm -hmm. and arrogance. Um, you begin to um, believe your press clippings. You begin to think that maybe you are better and smarter than other people. Mm. Competition knocks you back. Yeah. It forces you to go back to becoming a, a, a student again, to learning new tricks, to learning new skills in order to continue to learn and grow. That's the last chapter in our book, Conscious Leadership, is continuously learn and grow. Mm. I do see that's a good metaphor for life, that we are... We, our entire lives should be learning and growing from the day we're born until the day we die. And uh, I think that's a good way to live. So now uh, Whole Foods Market has merged with Amazon. And the news is that you've adopted a $15 an hour uh, minimum wage for employees. Could you kind of walk us through that decision, uh, how it's affected the company, and whether you think this is um, what every business should do. Well, there's a lot to unpack there. So um, this is something Amazon wanted to do. Uh, and when they talked to us about it, we did some calculations. And uh, that decision, so we didn't have that many people that made less than $15 an hour at Whole Foods when that announcement was made. Uh, most people were making more than $15 an hour. but if somebody had worked for the company for, say they were making $12 an hour or $13 an hour is what they started at, and then now they're starting, they get an automatic raise to $15 an hour. Somebody else has been working for the company for two years and had gotten up to $15 an hour. Well, if you raise that new person up to $15 an hour, the other person's going to feel like, wow, that's not fair. I, I put in two years here and he's making the same amount of money I am. So the result is we had to increase the pay of about, 90,000 people in the company got pay increases, about 90,000 people. And we, we did the math. That cost us $250 million because of all the raises that we had to give. Right. Not that 90,000 people got raised to 90, but some people were making $20 and they got a raise to $22, or they right. were making $25 and they got a raise to $27 or $28. So everybody got a raise because when you raise the bottom, it pushes everything up. Sure. So we talked to Amazon about that and said, this is going to be expensive. But one of the things that we like about, I like about Amazon is Amazon thinks long term. And they said, there are a lot of good things will happen if we make this pay increase. First of all, uh, turnover rates will go down. Fewer team members are going to quit because we're going to be paying better than they're going to get from a competitor. So we'll have lower turnover, less money we have to invest in training and, and, uh, and, and for new people coming in. And also... Uh, it generated a lot of positive publicity for Amazon and for Whole Foods. So that, those were the two gains. Um, so that's why it made sense for Amazon to do that for Whole Foods. They were willing to take the hit of that. And if you add it up to Amazon, it was far more than $250 million. It was probably well over a billion dollars a year uh, that it, in additional wages that were being paid. Mm -hmm. Now, your final, you asked if I think that's a good idea for the whole society. Yeah. Should, should the government be mandating that? Let's make a distinction between, let's be very clear here. I have my personal opinion. I, whole Foods has a position and Amazon has a position. So I'm going to 
make a differentiation between all three of those. Okay. In my own personal opinion, wages should be set by the market place. They're, they're, government should not determine what wages are. That, that, that is that when you raise wages above the level of productivity that people produce, you just, it's, a, it's a simple economic fact. You just increase unemployment. Yeah. Some people lose their jobs because they're not worth $15 an hour. Right. They're, they're doing, let's say, I'll give you an example. Tom is making $10 an hour at some place, uh, say a restaurant, and uh, the restaurant feels like Tom's producing $10 worth of value for the restaurant, and then they raise it to 15 Now, Tom isn't worth $15 to the restaurant, so Tom loses his job, and they bring in, uh, they automate in some way, or right. they cut back in right. service in right. some way, because they're in a competitive situation, and, and other restaurants are having to adapt to it. If that wasn't true, that's so obvious to me, but it's not necessarily always obvious to people when I'm talking like in this type of event. And I say, well, if we raise the minimum wage to $15, that's a good thing. Why not raise it to $100 an hour? Yeah, what would happen? Why stop there? Maybe $1,000 an hour. If everybody got paid $1,000 an hour, just think how good it would all be. Everybody would, you know, we'd have a living wage for everyone. And it's, it, when you exaggerate it, you can see that what would happen if we paid everybody $1,000 an hour is we just have massive unemployment. Because, exactly. Or everything, inflation would go up astronomically because you'd have more money chasing after the same amounts of goods and everything would get bid up. Right. So, I, and I made this argument uh, internally. So there are different parts of, this, of the country that are not all equal. So let's say... Um, $15 an hour is no big deal in Seattle or New York City or Los Angeles or San Francisco or practically any of the urban, you know, uh, coastal cities. They, that's probably, uh, most people are making over $15 or more in those, in those cities. But if you go to other places in the United States, say um, Jackson, Mississippi or Mobile, Mobile Alabama or... Um, a small town in Georgia or some, some small towns in West Texas or um, the Midwest, those, those pay rates, the market wages there might be, you know, $10 might be, or 8 or 9 to $10 might be the going wage rate with a lower cost of living right. going along with that in those markets. Right. So raising those wages in those particular areas makes it, when, when we had to increase our pay, in, say, the cities in the south part of the United States, it was hard on the profitability of those stores because we were now paying far above the average pay. And that did help our lower our turnover, but it made us a lot less competitive. It made it more difficult for those stores to be profitable. Did, did you have to raise prices then? We just, uh, we just lost money, or we made less money. That's what we did mm-hmm. because we, we, we did not raise prices. Uh, you took the hit. We took the hit. And, uh, I mean, Whole Foods is a big corporation. Amazon's even one of the biggest corporations in the world, the first or second largest corporation in the world, depending on how you think about it. They can afford to do it. But your little local diner may not be able to afford to do that, or the small hardware store that's just uh, the owners themselves might be struggling to make that much money, let alone being able to pay their help that much. So government mandating that stuff, in my opinion, I I don't think it's sound economics. I don't agree with it. Yeah. Now, Whole Foods has no, just to be clear, that's my own opinion. Right. I'm not speaking right. for Whole Foods. Right. I'm certainly not right. speaking for Amazon. I'm speaking for John Mackey. That's my opinion. 
Whole right. Foods has no, we don't take political stances. We just don't do Understood. that. Understood. And Amazon can do what it wants. And if you should talk to Amazon about that, because I don't make policy at Amazon. You know, what's interesting is you said uh, if a person's making $10 an hour, they're not worth $10 an hour. Uh, when you put that in the middle of the rest of your philosophy on this, the philosophy of innovation, and maybe we'll talk a little about uh, imitation in a bit, uh, you almost have to qualify and say, uh, this person's not worth $10 an hour now. Sure. But with the innovation, they will be worth the $15 an hour. And maybe worth is a wrong word because people misinterpret yeah, what yeah. that means. Economically speaking. Everybody has intrinsic worth. Of course. And every human being is worth a lot more than $15 an hour in terms of their value that they are as a human being. Sure. I mean in terms of the economic contribution they're making through their work. Precisely. That, that, that is determined through market processes, through, through market competition. Wages, yeah. when you force them up artificially beyond what the productivity rates justify. I mean, the economic laws are pretty clear. It results in unemployment. Sure. And some people keep, yeah. get a, a, a raise in pay, and other people lose their jobs. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about this uh, connection between innovation as imitation uh, and some of the practical ways businesses can encourage this kind of creativity and uh, innovation. You speak about this in, in the book, about innovation. You alluded to Professor McCloskey's uh, preference for the word uh, innovation. Yes. Innovation is, uh, is one of the most important things. That, that's how progress occurs in society. Innovation is, um, if I think back in my own life, I get asked, Father Robert, I get asked from time to time, you know, what's the future going to hold? And I always say, you know, nobody knows what the future is going to hold because if you go back 20 years ago, which isn't very long, right now almost everybody in advanced societies has a very serious addiction to their smartphones. Right. Right? Everybody walks around staring at their phone all the time. And, and they feel, do I have my phone? Is it with me? And they're very insecure without it. They didn't exist 20 years ago. Right. There were no smartphones 20 years ago. And now we're completely addicted to it. 20 years ago, Google was a relatively new company. Um, Facebook didn't exist, uh, Twitter didn't exist, Uber didn't exist, Airbnb didn't exist, Tesla didn't exist. These companies that have had these major impacts in the world didn't even exist 20 years ago. Right. And so who knows what the world's going to be like 20 years from now because new innovations are going to occur that you and I actually possibly can't even imagine. Right. So that's how humanity makes progress. We have innovations that occur, and then they get iterated. They get iterated on. I mean, Whole Foods was innovation, very innovative in our, in our early days. We, we kind of invented the natural food supermarket, an idea that there'd be a food store that was of scale that would sell just natural, organic, and healthy foods. That had never existed before. Now, it's been widely copied, so the innovation has moved into the mainstream. You have to keep innovating or you get people copy you and pass you up. Yeah. In, in the third part of your book, you discuss people and culture, and you give some advice um, on HR matters. Uh, so we're in the middle of a real market volatility right now. Most companies have struggled with the question of laying off employees. So what advice do you have for business 
people seeing a decrease in revenue and then the current challenges that we're facing? That's a good question. And, and there's not one answer that fits all circumstances, right? I mean, it depends upon the business. It depends upon the circumstances it finds itself in to say what's the right thing to do. Um, I can only talk about what Whole Foods does because that's what I know best. And from time to time in our history, we've had to, um, we've had to do layoffs when business has turned downward and we, or st- store, we've had a few stores in our history that weren't successful and they've had to be closed and some people have lost their jobs. Now Whole Foods is at a scale where we, we may, we may make a new move, we may make a decision and we may have to restructure in some way and some people will lose their jobs. We try to always do that in a very caring and compassionate way. So the one thing we will do is we generally try to make people a job offer but we may not be able to keep the same job that they had at the rate of pay they had, but we'll still make them an offer to do something else in the company. It might be something they don't want to do. It might be a pay rate, a pay rate that they're not willing to take, in which case they'll have a package that they can take as a severance package, and then they can go look for a job elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we always, and we try to give people, we try to be fair about it. We try to give opportunities. We always try to give other offers. But... A business has to be able to, to change as, it, as markets change, as circumstances change. When you go into a pandemic like this, I mean, Whole Foods has been adding employment on this entire time because our business has gone up. Wow. But, but we're in a unique circumstance, uh, particularly with all the food deliveries uh, that we've been doing. How's your toilet paper stock? You know, that's, that's, it's pretty good <laughs> right now, but uh, uh, I... I I saw this really funny uh, cartoon that kind of summed it up for me. Do you remember that movie series called Back to the Future? Yes, yes. Did you ever see that? Yes. So you've got this guy, and, and uh, he goes into the, he go, first he goes into the past, and then the second one he goes into the future, and he's got this flying car, right? That's the, right, and, right. And, he, and so in this little cartoon I saw, the, the doc, the crazy doc, the professor comes back, and he says, Marty, you'll never, what I, you'll never know what I found in 2030. They're... they're they're still using all the toilet paper they stored from 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what happened? Uh, the, actually, the toilet paper is particularly interesting because uh, there was still plenty of toilet paper, but studies showed that Americans use about 50% of their toilet paper away from the home. Right. When they go to work, when they go to an office, or they go to a restaurant, or they go to a gym, or they, that so... There's institutional toilet paper in these big rolls right. that's not adapted to <laughs> consumer use at home. So right. almost all of that toilet paper started being used at home, and it took a while for the supply chain to adapt to that. So we had a, we had a run on toilet paper. When, when this hit uh, in our parish and we had to close the school for a period of time, uh, it occurred to me that we had all this toilet paper in the school and everybody was frantic about toilet paper. So we just called all our parishioners and said, if you need toilet paper, we have the toilet paper from the school, which is not being used presently. We only had about two or three takers <laughs> on that. So, But uh, you're making my point. You yeah, were long in yeah. toilet paper while right. the people at home were short in it. And that, right. But what's exactly. interesting is the supply chain, it took a few months, but it just shows you the, how dynamic um, capitalism, innovationism is right. because supply chain reset itself 
and it only lasted two or three months, and then yeah. toilet paper uh, supplies adapted to the marketplace. Yeah. John, you, you are uh, refreshing as a, a leader in business because your, your curiosity, uh, your wanting to learn things is very evident. Um, what advice do you have, and I suspect this is going to be part of it, to young people who are entering uh, leadership, entering business? How do you become a better leader? Read my book. <laughs> well, yes, and we've got the book right here. I'm showing it on camera. We'll make sure that uh, we have it available. So the first thing is you have to want to become a better leader. You'd be surprised. Most people don't. Human egos being what they are, many people have trouble learning because they can't admit they don't know everything. and They don't have a beginner's mind. They don't. They, they think admitting they have to learn something means they, that maybe it threatens their self-esteem. So if you want to become an effective leader, you have to be curious. You have to want to keep learning. And you have to, you have, to have self-awareness. You have to realize. I think one of the things that I'm pretty good at is I have a great deal of self-awareness. And I figured out pretty early on what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. And the things that I'm not good at, I don't. I just I brought people in who had strengths that I didn't have, sure. and I built a team around me that supported my weaknesses because I have so many weaknesses. <laughs> and, but I I've got a lot of great people that that solve for those weaknesses. So we have to, we have to have that we have to be that self awareness, and we have to have the earnest desire to improve. Yes, you know I think it's Aquinas gives us a, a definition of humility. I put it in my own words that it is the love of truth above all things. And that sounds like what you're saying, just to pursue the truth. What's, what's reality here? You know, am, am I strong in this? Am I weak in that? Uh, and that helps. In the last two minutes that we have together, what advice do you have for business leaders as we're facing 2021? I mean, we're coming out of a dreadful year. Uh, what what words of hope do you have? What words of insight do you have? Uh, I'll answer that question a little differently than you probably hope that I was going to answer, but I, I think it's most important to deliver this message. Business people are disliked by intellectuals, and that's not new. That's been the case throughout all history. The 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 intellectuals have looked down upon business as mere tradespeople. They've there have been uh, if you were an ethnic minority like the Jews or the Chinese, you were persecuted and uh, 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 treated poorly. Business is is seen as sort of this kind of grubbing for money type of thing, and that's one reason intellectuals don't like capitalism as a general rule. Not all intellectuals, but the academy in general is pretty hostile towards business. And business people are the great value creators in the world. We just don't get credit for it. We're the ones, I mean, if you go back 200 years ago, and that's just a drop of time in the, in the human journey. 200 years ago, 94% of every human being alive, 94% of the people on the planet lived on less than $2 a day. 94%, only 6% had $2 a day in today's dollars. Mm -hmm. That's down now to about 8% of the population in the world. How did that happen? Remarkable. It happened through innovationism. It happened through business. Yeah. 
Yes. It happened because the genie got out of the bottle with the Industrial Revolution, and humanity began to pile innovation upon innovation upon innovation, and business drove it all. We're the heroes of the tale. We're just not giving credit for it. Yeah. So I want to tell people that are in business to recognize that you're doing very important work in the world. It's through the work that we do that the world makes progress, poverty lessens, prosperity grows, and uh, to have the courage and the self-esteem to stand up for the goodness of what you're doing, to realize that you have a higher purpose besides just making money, that you're creating value for other people, and to do it with love, to do it to lead with love, to, to do it caring about people and service to, their, to the common good of all, to look for that win-win-win solution. And if we do that, you'll have a deeply fulfilling and happy life. That's, that's been my experience. John Mackey, it's great to be with you together again. And uh, I just want to remind our viewers, uh, Conscious Leadership, I'll bet you you can find it on Amazon. And you can get it at Whole Foods, too. And at Whole Foods. <laughs> great. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at actonline at actin.org. Until next week, for Actonline, I'm Gabriel Jaja. 